the shore and it was time to tack. Back on deck I looked up and could see more clearly and began to pick out a few lights around me. As the seconds passed the fog began to lift and I could see lights distinctly for the first time. My little world evaporated. I suddenly felt I'd been dropped into a Hollywood film set. There couldn't have been a greater contrast from the silent covering of the fog to the thousands of lights which surrounded me. There were boats of all sizes heading towards us, and helicopters above with searchlights sweeping as if looking to pinpoint an escaping prisoner. The noise dominated the moment. Whenever the sound of the rotors drifted away on the wind, it was replaced by the radio chattering out information on our position and speed. I stood in the cockpit, took a few long, deep and calming breaths, and looked up and around to try to take in the situation. It was breathtaking. The water felt confused as the boats moved close around us, a choppy, fidgety motion which I hadn't felt once in months. I could hear voices on the radio, some in English, some in French, some of strangers, some of people I knew. I thought I heard the name of the boat that my parents had come out on at the start of the race. I knew they were near, I could sense it, but my world was blinded by the blazing searchlights. I had my own floodlight ready on board and tried pointing it at several of the large motor cruisers to see if I could spot Mum and Dad. No luck, just many waving figures and rolling cameras. I had the photocopy of the finish line given to all the skippers at the briefing before the race. I had put it in the waterproof folder, hoping then that the day would come when we would use it to find our way in. Everything seemed so different from our departure. Even the lighthouses on the harbour breakwaters were lost in this artificial brightness. I ran up and down Kingfisher's deck, making final checks as we glided towards the finish line. I could see every part of the boat, so there was no need for a head torch. I stood by the shrouds, squinting to see the Nushsud boy that helped signal the finish, but it was impossible. I returned to the chart table to study the chart. We needed to tack again. I talked on the radio to the support boats, asking them to warn others I was about to turn. We had to make sure that we made space in the crowd so I could turn Kingfisher safely. I dashed below a couple of times to use the main VHF radio once the handheld had gone flat. Although we were clearly not alone, it seemed so much quieter inside the boat. I tried to believe that the finish was not imminent, that I was just sheltering inside from a rough sea, still in the same world I'd been in for so long, but I couldn't. Our sole objective for over ninety days had been to cross the line as quickly as possible, and now it was less than a mile away. We'd sailed twenty-six thousand miles, but I wished we still had twenty-six thousand more to go. As I peered into the cockpit of each boat, I could see people, people I knew, faces I had not seen for over three months, tearful but smiling. Everyone hung on every second of every minute as we closed in on the finish. Although I was desperate to see everyone again and to cross the line before we had more problems, I still wasn't ready for the race to end. Our focus on getting here had been so intense that it was hard to see the other side of it. I had been through the experiences in my head a million times, but at the end of it all, something somewhere inside me knew that everything was going to change. Things began to happen more quickly. The RIB with our support team on board was now almost alongside us. The flashing white light of the boy was getting closer, and its enormous black and yellow superstructure became clear ahead of me. For a brief moment there seemed to be complete silence. We were nearly there. I looked around Kingfisher for one final check that everything was still okay. As my eyes refocused on the boy, there was a deafening crack. 
the gun had fired. And at 19.36 and 40 seconds, on 11th of February 2001, we had crossed the finish line. Adrenaline surged through me. The RIB pulled alongside us, its passengers jumping aboard like a raiding party. And as the horns blew and the voices screamed, I was embraced and wrapped up in loving arms, my first human contact for over three months. Strangely, there were no tears, just the most incredible feeling of relief. As if a plug had been pulled, my concentration ebbed away in the time it takes for a gun to fire. No longer did I need to sleep for just ten minutes to recover. No longer did I need to look at the instruments each time I blinked. It was over. The race was over. And if it weren't for the adrenaline, I'm sure I would have collapsed. We had made it. Together, Kingfisher and I had made it. The whole team was soon on board and getting to work. As we pointed to the harbour entrance, I tried to say that the course was 055, but my voice was drowned out by the noise. Alain Gautier, a member of the Kingfisher team and himself a veteran of the Vendée Globe, came on board and, placing his hands on my shoulders, looked straight into my eyes. He understood. He then handed me a rucksack like a radio pack, connected to a pair of headphones. For the next hour, I was interviewed live on at least two TV stations but I found it difficult to concentrate, my first priority still being to get Kingfisher into the harbour. Alain asked what I had learnt about myself and how I had changed during the race. I tried to explain, but he knew. He had already been through this. We had lived through extraordinary and dangerous situations out there, and I reflected on how much people are capable of. But while it's tough, it's still our choice, and in that way we are very, very lucky. Without warning, the mainsail dropped down as we approached the entrance to the harbour channel. I reacted without thinking before checking myself. For the first time in months, Kingfisher was out of my hands. I wanted to talk to the guys sailing her. I wanted to be with them. But as we neared the breakwater, more and more boats closed in. Once in the channel, you could have walked from one side of the harbour to the other across the boats. It was euphoric mayhem. People were cheering, waving and calling my name. Through the smoke from the flares I could see whole families, people old and young on the edge of the harbour walls and along the water's edge. In the distance I could see thousands of people hanging over their balconies. I'd never seen so many smiles at one time. Overwhelmed by the welcome, I could only smile back from ear to ear. I tried to smile for every single face in that crowd as we slowly crept up the channel. I was handed a pair of distress flares, which I banged on the deck to light. The heat was intense and the fumes filled the air. Through the red light of the flares I could see more and made out individual figures. Thank you, Ellen was written on a piece of wallpaper held up by a boy and his mother. He was standing on tiptoe, trying to lift his message high in the hope that we would see it. People were waving flags and flares. There were scarves and torches. I felt every person in that crowd had been with us and that everyone there was sharing in the moment. It seemed as if I was enjoying a party, not a celebration laid on especially for us. I was smiling and cheering with the people. The contrast from being completely alone to being surrounded by hundreds of thousands of people within a matter of hours could not have been greater. It was such an intense situation that it was almost too much to bear. I wanted to jump high in the air to say thank you. The last time I had passed these harbour walls was when we set off for the start. I remembered the nerves, the reality of the situation, and the concentration of trying to focus on the race that was about to start. 
Although I had to believe we would finish the race, I was aware of the dangers to come. Every one of the twenty-four boats crossed that start line with the hope of finishing. I found it difficult to comprehend that of all of those, I was just the second to make it. As I thought of what we'd been through together, I dropped to my knees and kissed Kingfisher's cold deck, the two flares still burning bright and hot in my hands. As the flares burnt themselves out, I began to see the faces around the boat more clearly. Through the constant barrage of camera flashes, I looked ahead and there, in a small RIB, was Michel Desjoyeaux, the Frenchman who had crossed the same line just over twenty-four hours earlier to win the race. I walked to Kingfisher's bow and swung over her pulpit to climb below her bowsprit. In the shadow of the bow, I could only see Misha's eyes as he approached. Not a single communication had passed between our two boats while we'd been out there, but we had shared so much. Mish knew that too. We hugged briefly, then he was gone. There was still another surprise in store for me in the channel. Friends of the project had brought Iduna to Les Sables de Long. She was my first real boat, bought with school dinner money saved over eight years. She had been laid up in Mum and Dad's garden for the last three years, and I was stunned by the thoughtfulness of the gesture. At a little over twenty feet long, she was tiny, and as I looked down into her cockpit from Kingfisher's enormous bow, it just emphasised how much life had changed over the last three years. Seconds out from the pontoon we had left on the day of the start, Mum and Dad came on board for the first time, their faces showing sheer happiness and relief. Dad walked across and held out his arms, and as they closed around me, the length of time I'd been away was suddenly apparent. Mum hugged me too, and as I wrapped my arms around both of them, she kissed me on my forehead. Now